weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Thanks to the two Johnnies, it's Thursday the 23rd of February and this is Game On. Coming up today, the voice of football, John Motson's colleague Guy Mowbray joins us to pay tribute to the commentating great. A comfort for him in this second half. Forward it goes again. By Kinsler, Quinn heads on. Oh, surely this time for Keane. And Ireland do it! Robbie Keane! second minute of stoppage time has scored the equaliser. Look at these scenes. Just look at these scenes. Oh, we remember them well. It's also a big European night ahead in Old Trafford as Manchester United take on Barcelona. And in rugby, Bernard Jackman is in studio as Warren Gatlin rings the changes for Wales and Andy Farrell names his Ireland side to face Italy. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. Game on on 2FM. Now, welcome along. Bernard Jackman is sitting across from me here in studio. Ruby is with me as well. Bernard, uh, back in for the Six Nations. How are you uh, finding the build-up to Italy and after a little bit of a break? Yeah, look, it's been quiet. Obviously, massive hype for Wales. Um, we dealt with that. Uh, and then, obviously, France, we knew they were a real challenge. And then the follow week last weekend and it's just starting to pick up a little bit slowly with the under 20s tomorrow night which should be a good game and then obviously we've got Wales England which is on uh, and obviously then we uh, we play Italy as well on, on Saturday and then Scotland France so yeah it's been quite but it's nice to see some of the changes that have been made and um, you know Jack Conan gets a chance uh, Ian Henderson's come in for Tyg Byrne uh, Bundy Aki gets an opportunity Ross Byrne and Craig Casey obviously haven't done so well off the bench against France get a chance to start and you know I think Farrell has shown the respect he has for Italy by picking a lot of the the starters but also just freshen up a little bit We're going to be getting into all of that team uh, selection very shortly but just first of all Wales, England any developments on that given your sources in Wales? Look at I think they, the game is going ahead the, the players feared the ultimate, um, I suppose, action that they could pull, which was strike, because it would have cost nine million. Um, so they've had a verbal agreement. The players have lost out big time. They they got given uh, concessions around things that probably the WRU wanted to give away anyway, which was a, a decrease from the sixty cap rule to twenty five cap rule. Um, they're they're still looking like they're going to be on a fixed variable rate. So if you're offered a hundred grand contract, it's actually not a hundred grand; it's eighty grand. Um, with the opportunity to earn the 20 back through performance clauses so um, it's verbally agreed uh, but until it's signed um, they're still going, this is going to rumble on and do you know what it's, it's going to rumble on next year as well because it actually only affected 74 players who were off contract there's a, a lot of players who are on significantly more money now than they will be this time next year when they renegotiate and you can imagine you know they're not going to be happy to, to sign contracts that are um, significantly less than they're currently on it was uh, it was such an interesting few days for me because I had those little kids from Wales staying and conversation naturally goes to the Six Nations and the upcoming World Cup and you know they're little kids but they're the future like they're yeah. the fans they're the ones that are that you want following your team and I, you know I'm asking them like how are they going to do in, in in the World Cup terrible they're awful they're so bad how are they going to do in the Six Nations oh my gosh they're so bad they're so terrible we don't even care it's that bad and just even to hear the kids be so despondent about the national team it's it's such a a tricky place for Wales to be in because you have to try and win back not just the the I guess the educated existing fans but the new ones as well and um, a lot of damage has been done when when you when you hear that from them. 
Rugby in Wales is in big trouble. Um, obviously, Cardiff and Swansea got to the Premiership um, and they're no longer there, but the money they got on that rise, um, they invested very smartly into the pathways in the valleys and, and non-traditional soccer um, uh, parts of Wales which were rugby strongholds and, and um, a lot of the best young talent is now playing soccer mm-hmm. uh, and then like you know those kids you know they, their impression of the current national team is, is quite poor but realistically it was it was only three years ago they won they won mm-hmm. a, a Six Nations they were in a semi-final of a World Cup in 2019 it just shows you how quickly things can turn and now the way they're going to fund the four regions they're effectively going to be way less competitive next year, and you know you could argue they're not even competitive as it is. So, you know, if if, that, if at regional level they're going to struggle, the national team is an aging team. If they're going to struggle, suddenly then you know Principality Stadium doesn't get sold out, um, sponsors don't pay as much, the prize money from Six Nations etc. decreases, and you go into a, a downward cycle very quickly in spiral. So, um, it is very worrying for them at the moment. It is worrying, but you had also coincided with a, a surge in Welsh soccer. I mean, Gareth Bale, that soccer mm-hmm. team getting to the World Cup, and all of a sudden one becomes sexy and one isn't. Mm-hmm. So how do Welsh rugby, how does the Six Nations, the Six Nations without Wales is no good. The URC, the champ, the, the URC and the, and the league, they need the Welsh clubs as well. So what do all of rugby, what does all of rugby have to do? to help Wales look I think the, the biggest thing Ruby is you're right because if you think about it next year in the URC so the four regions are probably knocking 2.5 million each off their budget right so um, they're going to have less players they're saying 36 professional players and then bumping up the academy so that's probably five or six players professionals you know established players who know the time of day less than they have this year so from the Irish province point of view on a weekly basis it's, it's pretty much a given that we're going to be stronger than, than the Welsh um, so realistically then we only really have the three strong South African teams the Bulls the Sharks and the Stormers plus uh, Zeb- or Benetton not Zebra Zebra Poor uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh so it's going to affect our league the URC which is the bread and butter Champions Cup they're not going to be there so I think the the the, the, answer, the solution Ruby is is that even is we all share the same pot um, which is the Six Nations um, and if, if Wales aren't investing in their in their, in their rugby um, teams regional national team there needs to be some repercussions I mean for years we're talking about Italy being you know dragging the Six Nations down and not being competitive and thankfully at at the moment it looks like they're going to get a bit better but it comes in the back of significant spending in their pathways significant spending in their professional teams and now we're starting to see a little bit of a uh, of of an increase which is good for the competition but if Wales are to start to um, I suppose drop off at the same time that Italy get a little bit better well then it's not good for anybody so I think what the, the unions need to do is they need to probably put pressure on the WRU so what the WRU have been doing Ruby is they've been spending money on capital um, assets so they built a hotel they're building a, spend a lot of money on creating a stadium uh, a roof tour for, for tourists and, and things like that and, and not putting the money into the into the, the game Um and they probably thought they were going to get away with it because there was a golden generation there who could get results regardless of of the the spend. Whereas now that looks like it's dead. Um, and yeah, it, bleak times ahead. But unless they're made invest, um, they could run the game into the ground there. You say made invest. There's two teams in Scotland, am I right? Yeah, two teams in Scotland, yeah. Yeah, there's 5.4 million people in Scotland. Yeah. There's four teams in Wales. There's 3.1 million people in Wales. 
Yeah. Do they have to lose a team? Yeah, look, I think that, to be honest, that even in Wales uh, and even amongst some of the players, I spoke to some Ospreys players and, and Dragons players last weekend because they were in Ireland for games. They know that they they can't afford to run four regions properly. Um, and I think I think if we were to have this conversation in two or three years' time, you know, you, you'll have three Welsh regions. The problem is at the moment, they would make that decision today, I think, but they would actually lose money um, because of the the way the participation agreements are for the URC, etc. Uh, and, and that led to a discussion that maybe Ealing and Ospreys would merge. So Ealing are a club in London who, because of stadium size, haven't been allowed to go up to the Premiership. So they're kind of in no man's land. Um, the URC, I think, would love a team in London. Um, so maybe that's something that may happen quite quickly. But I think from a Welsh rugby point of view if they could fund three teams properly give them back the two million they're taking off them and maybe another million to improve them um, and have three teams who are competitive in the URC maybe two teams who are reasonably competitive in the Champions Cup which at the moment they're not really uh, none of them are even though Ospreys are in the quarterfinal for the first time um, in a long time then that's probably the way forward and because of changes 60 cap rule the best Welsh players can leave Wales but still be picked for Wales if you get me um, which would strengthen the, the the national team so Scotland have two but obviously you have players like Finn Russell who play outside of Scotland but can come back in on a Saturday and help Scotland win Well it's uh, definitely a really interesting time for, for rugby over there and, and listening to those little boys for the last few days alright Gareth Bale is uh, taking precedence over the Wales players I actually even asked them who's their favourite player and they didn't have one so <laughs> that's how low the bar is there at the moment um, let's move on now so there was uh, sad news today that football commentator John Motson passed away age 77 um, he's a legendary he was a legendary commentator 29 FA Cup finals 10 World Cups uh, he was in the BBC um, for years he started in match of the day in 1971 he commentated on more than 2,500 games but that aside he just seemed like one of the most popular guys in the um, in the stadium. So nice to everybody, so chatty, a time for everybody and the tributes have been flowing in all day about him. Um, he seemed to just make such a, a lasting impact on the people that he met and left a, a great legacy. We chatted to his colleague Guy Mowbray and we'll be, ta- we'll be playing that out a little bit later on but he had some uh, brilliant memories of him. Um, Ruby, you watched a lot of him and listened to a lot of him growing up and today then as well to um, remind you of just how great he was. I know I'm on RT Radio and you shouldn't be publicising the, the opposition, but if you do go on the BBC website and watch his interview with Brian Clough from, I'm not sure what year it was, but it is just incredible the way Guy or Brian Clough speaks to John Motson and how he doesn't lose his temper and keep ask, asking him questions. Like, if it happened now, social media would explode <laughs> with the interview that, that Brian Clough gave him. But, hey, look, he's all these different commentaries, Marie, you're on about highlights. His voice is just synonymous mm. with soccer. FA Cups, World Cups, you said it, even that commentary with Robbie Keane. Um, I probably watched that on Irish television, mm-hmm. yet I can remember that commentary so clearly. Yeah, uh, he was actually on uh, Game On back in 2017 with Hugh Cahill and uh, Ronan, our producer, has dug up some of it. Let's listen. And when you started, there, was, there wasn't nearly as many camera angles, John, I was reading today, no. that there was no, no replays either, and you just had to commit no. to what you saw and trust your, trust your instinct. You're quite right there. Um, Barry Davis and I used to go out on a Saturday to do the Match of the Day highlights, and when a goal was scored or any other incident for that matter, there was no replay because the only machine the BBC had was being used in the studio for racing. You know, the yeah. um, 
close finish at Ascot. <laughs> and what used to happen was we, when the players were going back celebrating to the centre circle when a goal was scored, Barry and I had to retract the way the goal came about in words and hope that when they got the machine back in the evening and they put the replay in, <laughs> that we hadn't got it too far wrong. <laughs> um, now, of course, for the modern commentators, it's completely different. You know, you're, you're given probably three, four, five replays and maybe you don't need them all. But in those days, it was a bit of guesswork, I have to say. So your preparation had to be pretty spot on then, John. I, I think I remember reading years ago about something you had commented on your own pre-match preparation, that something like 90% of the stuff that you have prepared for, you'd never use. But you, yeah. it's obviously better to have it and not use it than the other way around. Yes, I mean, that always is the case. I mean, I come home sometimes and think, well, all that stuff I did on this player or that team... Um, never came to pass or I never used it but of course you've got to be prepared you don't know when you go and do a match who's going to be the star of the show I mean mm. you know giving you an example from this week when Woodburn scored for Wales um, as a commentator you'd have to do your homework on all the players and the substitutes and be prepared for anybody to hit the headlines mm. so that kind of um, intense preparation never goes away um, and it's a challenge and it's a uh, a kind of um, adrenaline rush, I suppose, on a Thursday and Friday when you're getting ready for your match, you try and visualise what might happen and you prepare yourself as best you can. But, I mean, the game being so unpredictable, of course, there are moments when any commentator can get caught out, however much effort you've put into the preparation. That was John Watson speaking to our own Hugh Cal back in 2017. Such an amazing voice and just even hear him in conversation there... Uh, one thing that, that we're going to touch on with Guy a little bit later on is that he always sounds like himself and it might sound like the simplest thing but it's not the easiest thing to do. No, it's not. And I look to different... Um, the advice that he gave mm-hmm. to Guy Mowbray who tells us about it um, is just incredible and I was just couldn't get over the advice of silence. Mm-hmm. When there's a goal scored to say nothing, to just allow, to allow it breathe. Like it it's so simple but to actually do that and to be yourself and oh, he was a, a brilliant commentator but the, the BBC had iconic voices so Peter O'Sullivan John Motson they're just incredible aren't they? Yeah they are and, and I know that one that you really liked Ruby was his commentary from back in 1972 when Hereford knocked out Newcastle they were a top flight team at the time as they are now and that one ended up being at the very top of match of the day and he captured everybody's attention and it really got him going um, let's remind ourselves of it this is Ronnie Radford to Addison Tyler now good ball out by Natras this is George the substitute oh turning well Malinda Meadows heading it on tremendous spirit in this Hereford side they're not giving this up by any means Radford now Tudor's gone down for Newcastle Radford again oh what a goal what a goal Radford the scorer Ronnie Radford and the crowd the crowd are invading the pitch and now it will take some time to clear the field what a tremendous shot by Radford he got that ball back and hit it from well outside the penalty area and no goalkeeper in the world would have stopped that it barely flew into the top corner of McFall's net 
to watch the scenes, Marie, as the crowd <laughs> from Hereford come running onto the pitch. Like, and there was a couple of minutes left. As as uh, John was saying, it's going to take a bit of time to clear this up. I wonder how long it actually did take to get them back off the pitch, back into the stands. But I suppose they were the good old days, weren't they? They were, yeah. And you, he paints such a lovely picture and he captures it. It's actually the sound is lovely, isn't it? It's such mm. a comforting sound having the crowd and, and just kind of the electricity that you can feel in the background there. Well, we did mention that we caught up with Guy Mowbray earlier on to chat to him about uh, his late colleague, John Motson. And I started by asking him about his interactions with John. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Just first and foremost, what were your interactions like with him? Oh, there, there were many, Marie. Um, started when I when I began at, uh, well, actually, even before I began at BBC Television Sport, which was in 2004, I, I got to know him through just being on the scene and seeing seeing him at games and sharing commentary gantries with him. And um, they, they were always, all, well, I was in awe to start with because he was, he was this voice that I'd grown up with. He was the voice of football and forever will be. Um, so I, I was a little bit in awe, but you wouldn't believe it by the way that he interacted with every one of us that does this job um, because he would greet you and you would be a colleague. You would be of equal standing straight away. There was no looking down. There was no patronising. He would ask you for information, which made you feel a million dollars. I think my, my second week at the BBC, I think you rung me up and said, oh, you covered Everton last week. Can you tell me about this guy? And, and, and oh, I was like, Motti's got my number. That's <laughs> tremendous. Um, and yeah, an, an, absolute, an absolute gentleman and, and, and the font of all football knowledge. But that is some way to put people at ease. He was top dog, yet he just put all the competition at ease beside him. Yeah, I think he was just so comfortable, Ruby. He, he, he knew what he did. Um, and he did it so well, and and more the merrier that came and joined in with him and did it with him. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't seen as any sort of competition. As I think maybe it is a little bit at times. Um, there weren't there was was no such thing as a rival. It was just we're, we're all watching football. We're all going to enjoy it. And my goodness, did he enjoy it? I mean, it, it was his life. He um, he lived and breathed it. He soaked up every bit of information, every bit of knowledge, um, and it, and it is the template for everybody to follow now because. The way he prepared for games was like nobody else. Um, we all do it now. We're all meticulous, a bit over the top with it sometimes, to be honest. But he, he didn't leave any stone unturned. Um, and then the, the the boyish enthusiasm that came out during a game, where you just have to hear any clip and you, you can hear it. it. It's there. It's ever-present. And what I liked was the common touch. It, it wasn't too wordy. It was. It was. I think simplicity was his strength. The rise and fall of his voice matched the game. You knew when it was good. You knew when it wasn't so good, and and he just he just got it right. He got the tone right pretty much every time. We have a brilliant sports writer here, Malachy Clerkin, and he wrote a, a fabulous piece for the Times today. And I just mm. thought uh, he summed him up beautifully. He said there was nothing artificial about John. You listened to him commentate on a football match, and you knew instantly and without having to think about it that he was being himself. And that's what everybody tries to be, and it's not an easy thing to do. So for that to be said about him, I just think it's lovely. No, that's that's absolutely right because commentary is is natural. You're reacting to what you see. It's it's. I think it's one of the purest forms of broadcasting. It's, it's a little bit like this, you know. It's live radio. You just you're just reacting to what you see, to what's going on. There's nothing pre-scripted or rehearsed. You have to be yourself. There's no other way of getting around it. And and he was every single time you know, for for good and bad. And when I say bad, there was never anything really bad. But I'm remembering um, one one funny story from from BBC Sport. When when talkback, he wasn't a fan of talkback of hearing the director. He liked to just get on with it. And if anybody got anything to say to him, you, you wrote it on a note and passed it on to him. And it was the World Cup. I think it was 2006. And again, that he was doing was going to extra time. 
and that the, the producer on Talkback was desperate for John to, to let it be known to everybody that the news was going to be delayed. So at about the fifth time of asking him that, John, you're going to have to tell people that the news is going to be a bit later, he pressed Talkback and he shouted back down, for goodness sake, this is the news. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he was right with that as well. Absolutely. Oh, that is, that is some line. But I was watching great tributes on him today and even looking back on his, on his life, Guy, and how he got going and how he got a start in the BBC, got a, a one-year trial with Match of the Day, and then a game, Newcastle and Hereford. Mm-hmm. That was his breakthrough. I mean, if you, a, you need a rub with the green, but could you imagine getting a breakthrough in a game that involved Hereford? <laughs> We all need that. We all need that, don't we? You all need a lucky break and something to go your way. Yeah, it could have been 4-0 Newcastle and no story here and, and it disappears. But I quite like the fact that all these years on and all the 29 FA Cup finals, he's been the 10 World Cups, six World Cup finals. But the thing that we hear most and the thing that he's most associated with him is still that game on a muddy pitch at Edgar Street, Hereford. And I love that because that that is all about the football, nothing else. No airs or graces, no frills. And that was John, just all about the football. Nothing else mattered. I think it's quite fitting that that's the game that we still most associate with him. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Was he a one-sport man? I know he kind of dabbles into in other big events like the Olympics, but was he just football to the core? Um, for, for, for most of his career, yes. I know in the early days, he, like you say, he did Olympics, he did... He did tennis, did a bit of Wimbledon, he did some boxing. Um, I, I think he could turn his hand to anything. I heard a story about he did Greco-Roman wrestling at one Olympic <laughs> Games and, and actually actually said that the, the bloke in the wrong colour leotard had won and, and got it wrong, gave the medal to the wrong bloke. But you, know, you, can, you can do that, we've all done things like that. Um, there's a funny story about um, he was commentating at Wimbledon for, for BBC Radio way back when and Jack Nicholson, the actor, just came in and sat next to him and started co-commentating with him. You know, things like th- things that don't happen to normal no. people like us. It just doesn't happen, but, but it always seemed to happen to Motti, and, and he just he, ca- he kind of just took it in his stride. Um, so yeah, he could do other things, but football was his passion. He was a he was a he was a decent player by all accounts. I think he played for Dulwich Hamlet at a, a very good amateur level. Um, I think he was a decent player, and, and he, he'd always set his stall out. I think to be a, to be a football journalist and, and reporter and ultimately commentator. And, and as a commentator, he actually I know that people came before. But I think what he did was he set the tone for every one of us that does it now because he was almost the first that didn't have the old BBC broadcasting established sort of authoritative voice. It was a normal voice and it matched sort of your everyday football watcher perfectly. Uh, and we've all got a little bit of that. We've all learned, subconsciously or otherwise, to take a bit of that style. And, and to me, his greatest legacy will be that for all the games that he's done, for all those big occasions that he got absolutely spot on, you'll actually hear him in every game that you watch on television, whether you know it or not, because whoever's doing it will have a little bit of Motti in them. That's a beautiful, beautiful tribute, Guy. And as you said there in the beginning, he was a reporter well, and I watched back his interview with Brian Clough, where Clough cuts loose about match of the day and what they're doing wrong. It it is a must-watch. But what patience did he have? I mean, he took some restraint as an interviewer not to bite. That's an incredible interview as such, but... How did he sit there and take that from Brian Clough? I, I, I don't know. I think he just read situations really well. Knew when to be quiet and, and, and knew when, when he could um, have a little bit of a go back. But um, he was a gent, basically. I think that was it. Um, he, he, just, he just was a very good reader of situations. Um, to, I have to say, 
not 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 so good sometimes with social situations where you know in his latter years he used to treat us all occasionally well there was once a year there'd be motty's lunch which all the other commentators and, and various editors of, of bbc staff would go to and um it, it would be at one of his favorite places in london never anything too fancy well, the number of times after a couple of glasses are red, he'd inevitably fall asleep in his pudding at some point. Um, but he was still he was still tuned in to everything that was going on, and we'd all be talking about this bit of football or that bit of football. And suddenly, the head would drop back, and he'd say, "1982, Spain, go Cachea. And he'd been listening to everything, and he knew the answer to the question before everybody else, anyway, whether he was half asleep or not. He just he just absorbed everything. It's so interesting because when you think about uh, commentators, you always think of their voices. But for him, you think about his look as well and the coat. Did he always have it on? <laughs> no, not always. Not always. I know he had some very smart sort of camel coats that, that, that <laughs> looked a bit better. But that became his trademark ever since the, uh, the, the, the iconic shot everybody's seen, the, the wintry day at Wickham Wanderers um, before an FA Cup tie when he was stood out in the snow for ages waiting to do a live hit into, into grandstand as it would have been then. Um, and he had the sheepskin on. And that basically then became the trademark and and he was i know he, he had a several he had a collection of several of them and uh, very expensive coats by all accounts I, I don't think any commentator should ever wear one again because you can't you have to retire you, can't. you just you, you just cannot that's yeah. that's his and that's it and and everybody should should be i i, I go coatless if possible i can't match wearing a coat like he, so i don't bother <laughs> what a legacy leaving the, the other commentators coatless uh, the one for me that stands out it's maybe because it was the time that i grew up and it was such an iconic um, moment and i loved the the Premiership then was um, David Beckham's halfway line goal and I watched it a a lot again today and and showed the children and stuff but to even nail it the way he did was special and it's the voice Mm -hmm. it's the way the voice goes up several octaves in that sort of boyish excitement of the moment just capturing the moment but then after a pause can come back down again to convey just what it means and the gravitas of it and, and that's what I meant earlier by, by the rise and fall. His timing was, was impeccable. And, and it's something I still try to, to copy today and sometimes get too excited and carried away. We all do. But, you know, the one, the one lesson I particularly learned from him is, is, is the value of silence. And when a goal goes in, don't fill the space. Call the goal, then let it breathe. And let it breathe for as long as you want, for as long as you see fit, because nobody's listening to you at that point anyway. This was this is an important lesson he told me. Nobody's listening to you at that point anyway. There's a goal gone in. There's pandemonium. Whether they're at the ground, whether they're at home, whether they're in the pub, people aren't listening to you at that point for a good 10, 20 seconds. Let it breathe. And and, and he was he was a master at it. Incredible advice. But then when you listen to it as well, and I was listening to one today, and you're, it's so right. When Paul Gascoigne got the second yellow card at the World Cup in the semi-finals against Germany or East Germany as it was then, mm. how he went down almost in mm. in mourning with Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, empathy, empathy, yeah, empathy, um, and feeling what the viewers are feeling. Um, and, and there's another lesson as well. You know, we all get we all get criticised as commentators because everybody has their own biases, and um, we all get criticised for being biased. I can guarantee you, we're not. <laughs> nearly all of us 99% of us aren't when the game starts it's one team against another mm-hmm. you, that's beaten out of you very early you just don't even feel it but the one time you can be and the one time that, that you sort of tuned into it and this is what he taught me as well it, just by listening to him is when it's a national team when 90% plus of the audience are kind of on that side whether it be Ireland whether it be England whether it be Scotland 
you, you, you're on that side. You know who people are willing to win. So you can feel that empathy. With, with It's not just with the players and the fans, but with those back home, with the viewers. So... But then, you know, another great Barry Davis had it, didn't he? You know, you, you, you can you can hear him saying, "Oh no," when 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 Southgate missed that chance for England against West Germany, Gascoigne rather at the far post, and then Southgate misses his penalty later. You know, I think you're allowed to do that when it when it's when it's a national team involved because the, the people are with you. People mm. are with you, and you are them. When it came to statistics, the. Um the view is that he was a huge fan, but he used them as a guide rather than a weapon, and he had a really good instinct on on when to use them. Was he a big fan of that side of the game? In in, in terms of, um, yeah, it, tell you, tell you what he wasn't so keen on was was kind of like feedback. As as we are, we're all so desperate for it now, aren't we? With please send your messages in, whether it be via social media, let us know what you think, etc. I, I remember being told of um, it, it was being asked to. This, this is the email address. We want your views afterwards. And, and Motti's response was, who's broadcasting to who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, I like that. <laughs> I'm liking it too, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you know uh, which, which is not meant to be disparaging to the viewers at all, but it was just kind of a reminder that, you know what, I, I, I have done my research here. I, I've been charged with bringing this to people. So um, can I just get on with it, please, <laughs> rather, than, rather than be interrupted? And again, that would have been meant in the best possible way. It, there, there, was no, there was no ego with John. Absolutely none, none at all. Just a childlike enthusiasm for, for football, and, and as, as Ruby will know, especially towards his retirement years, for racing as well. I mean, I think it's so poignant that he's, I, I was just thinking about catching up with him maybe at Cheltenham, and, and obviously that chance has gone now. It most certainly has it, but I think what I would think when I think of John Motson, I think of Peter O'Sullivan, two iconic BBC oh. voices. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and John always held Peter up as his hero. He always said he has the hardest job in the world and that he couldn't do it. And I completely concur with that. We all in football take our hat off to the racing commentators because how they do what they do is a different level to what we do. And, and he always said, he always said, Peter O'Sullivan was his ultimate hero. He, he, he often spoke actually about sitting next to the great man during a race meeting. And Peter's advice to John, and this was when he was quite young starting out, was he just said, my dear boy, they'll only remember the ones you mess up on. And, and it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And actually, he was still, even though he'd done it all and done it all brilliantly, and we're all like this, I certainly am like it now, you only remember your tiniest errors. You remember your errors. You don't remember the good ones. And it beats you up. And it, it did with John all the way through his career. I, I've, I've had conversations with him relatively recently where, oh, I didn't get that right. That line wasn't quite right. And I'm thinking, well, you don't have to worry about it, John. You're the best. But it still still got to him. The quest for perfection just just was was never ending. The perfect football commentary has never been done. I won't do it. Nobody will ever do it. But it won't stop us trying. Well, Guy, you've been very kind to take the time and take our call. We've talked for maybe 16 minutes. Why one memory is that I said East Germany instead of West Germany. So you're dead right. <laughs> the mistakes do get us off. <laughs> oh, you don't get a lot wrong, Ruby. Don't worry about I it. I don't know about that. Uh, Guy, enjoy your time in Manchester this evening. I hope you will see the Reds beat the Stripes. Thanks a million for taking our call. Cheers. I don't mind who wins as long as I get it right. In memory, John. <laughs> I think we can Thanks all relate to that. Thanks so much. RTE 2FM Game on on 2FM Now welcome back it's time to turn our attention to rugby again Bernard Jackman is with me in studio uh, Bernard 
the Ireland team was named for the Italy game a little bit earlier on. Six changes. Ross Byrne comes in. But what struck me about uh, Ross Byrne coming in is that it's going to be his first Six Nations start. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, he... Obviously, Johnny Sexton and Joey Carby were one and two for um, a long time. And Ross Byrne got a couple of hospital passes. He played against England mm-hmm. twice. Um, once when Ireland were coming off a heavy week in, in Portugal. Um, and the other time when Ireland were, were just in, in bad form. And he became the scapegoat for that. So he's he's refound, I suppose, the confidence of, of Andy Farrell. He's benefited from a little bit of luck in November when a couple of late injuries got him that chance to come on against Australia. And obviously, he kicked the, the winning penalty and then obviously Johnny Sexton got that facial injury over Christmas and he got to show what he could do for Leinster on a on a week to week basis. So been good off the bench against Wales and France and now he gets a chance to start and this is a big opportunity for him because ironically or interestingly Joey Carby was brought back into the mm-hmm. squad this week with Johnny uh, Sexton being having that niggle and you know, I think Joy Carby being brought back in would be a, a, a you know a perfect reminder to Ross Byrne that this isn't over. You know, he 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 probably needs one big start, one big performance just to nail down that replacement to, to Sexton, um, because obviously you've got you got Jack Crowley who's chomping at the bit to get game time, and he looks like a real talent. And then Carby, I thought, was very good for. Munster last week and mm-hmm. he's a super talented player um, and maybe him being back with Munster getting week uh, game game time quite regularly will will get him back into the type of form that made him the, the obvious successor to Sexton So Sexton still goes to Italy is that normal that he would try like he's travelling anyway? Yeah look at he's the captain um, he'll go he'll be there to I suppose probably you saw Jack Crowley was bringing on the tee for Sexton and Ross Byrne um, Johnny would probably do that bring on the messages um, and be part of, of the squad and, and help you know James Ryan if he, the you know, oh, yeah help James <laughs> Ryan um, and look it wouldn't be unusual for for a captain to go anyway it wouldn't be unusual they'll bring they'll bring four or five extra um, or maybe more they might even bring seven extra so to have 30, or 30 on the pitch for the warm-ups to, to do a little bit of 15 v 15 um, and Sexton will be will be one of those Keith Earls was carrying the bottle last week water bottles last week I think as well was he so it's a job for everyone in rugby yeah, isn't it no, no, look at the more the better <laughs> <laughs> the more it's a big chance for Craig Casey as well obviously he's been brought in instead of uh, Conor Murray at nine how much would Craig Casey and Ross Byrne have played together? Only those couple of appearances yeah, off the bench. Just off the bench, um, uh, to get off the bench late in games, so they wouldn't have played much together. But at least, like this week and, and last week. So last weekend was a follow weekend. So Ireland were in camp for for the early part of the week, and Farrell would have probably ran that combination together, and then they would have all this week. So um, getting the chance to start together increases and improves your your preparation time uh, together where sometimes we, we you know we we can be hypercritical of of combinations who get put together late in games and and they mightn't have got many reps together so uh, look I think they'll be the way Ireland play now is is so is so structured and even in the in the unstructured stuff we've got certain principles and um everybody seems to be very comfortable in terms of implementing that. So, I think we've got to the stage now. You're 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 nearly four years into, you know, the Andy Farrell, um, Mike Cat, Paul Paul O'Connell, and Simon Easterby uh, coaching group, John Fogarty, and uh, it's seen you're seeing a maturity and a cohesion that we probably haven't had for a while. What well, you mentioned, Andy Farrell. Let's hear from him. 
Italy Saturday. A couple of changes, quite a few changes to be fair, but uh, a lot of switching in and out during training. So you're quite happy with uh, with what you have. Yeah, um, you know it's not it's not um, that much change for us because what we've seen over the last four weeks in training gives us the confidence that this is a, a good side going out there to to be at our best at the weekend. Game number three, so I would assume, knowing how competitive you are, you're expecting the best performance so far. Well, that's what it's all about because you know it always has to be about progression because if we're going sideways, we're probably going backwards. So um, that's the message this week. Um, you know, we're we're two weeks further down the line come come Saturday uh, from from our last game. So hopefully um, that corresponds in a better performance. What are you expecting from Craig Casey and Mossbourne? They've closed up games. Now they're starting a match. To be themselves, um, you know, they, they 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 understand how we want to play. They're, they're all across their own detail and understand how how they want to lead the uh, team. But at the same time, they've got to find their way of expressing themselves within the game as well. And it's something that we've seen um, that's been very pleasing within training. Um, we've also seen the you know how calm they've been to to understand what's needed when they've come off the bench in, in, in big games of of, uh, of recent times so um, they get the chance to start which is a bit of a different dynamics in obviously for, for them in this competition but it's something that they're used to uh, week in week out for the clubs This one is a kind of slight edge to it you, you know given the fact that um, Italy are, are massively close to a first win in this year's Six Nations Exactly yeah um, they are and you know they're, they're, they're not just playing fantastic rugby they're They've, they've shown great character, hence the second half against against England um, um, a couple of weeks ago. So we know we're up against it. Um, we know that they would expect of themselves to come out there and, and, and win the game, and so do we. So that was Andy Farrell speaking to Michael Corcoran a little bit earlier on. He also brought up the uh, Ross Byrne Craig KC factor there. They've had to be patient, to be fair to them. It feels like they've kind of been there, thereabouts. Uh, Ross a little bit more uh, with Johnny and, and just given the situation in the club as well. How big an opportunity is it for them? And is there a lot of pressure now on, on them here? Or is it a case that, look, there's going to be a few more games to go anyway? No, I think there's, there's a lot of pressure, to be honest. Because this is it, this this is is it. Yeah, this, this is it yeah. because after this, Scotland and... And England is going to be full metal jacket. No, yeah. you know, this was the game to experiment. Um, and I think they absolutely deserve the opportunity. They have been um, patient. Casey has finally got ahead of Connor Murray um, in, in Munster, uh, you know, going into the Six Nations. But then Connor has, has been excellent in the first two games and shown that he still has a huge amount to offer. So Craig will want to nail down this um, this opportunity as as will Ross Byrne. But they're lucky in that, you know, they have a very settled team around them. So, okay, you know, Bundyak, he hasn't been starting, but he's been coming off the bench. You know, he's a proven international test player. Gary Ringrose is in incredible form. Hugo Keenan, outstanding. And then up front, you know, that pack with um, Doris van der Fleer, Porter, you know, being the the players on form, they're they're going to give them good possession. And Ireland have shown that when they when they have the ball, they're probably as dangerous as any team in the world at the moment. Hooker is the other, which I suppose maybe change. You could say Ronan Kelleher's in, Rob Herring is out of the squad, Dan Sheen is back on the bench. Is that a sign of the the natural pecking order? Obviously, Dan Sheen, then Ronan Kelleher, then Rob Herring. Yeah, I think it is, Rubio. I think um, Herring 
I'm not sure if he's past his HIA from that, um, if he's fully 100% from that hit he got from Antonio. Um, but I think Kelleher is a player that they they rate really highly and he, he's, a, he's a more powerful athlete than Rob Herring. Herring's set piece is, is outstanding. So I think we're very strong in with those three. Um, I think Sheen is number one. Uh, but because Kelleher's had you know so many so such bad luck with injuries, he's fit now. I think Farrell will want to give him a, a, a shot to start and let him show what he can do because Dan Sheen has racked up a huge amount of minutes this year. And as I said, I, I think Herring, if Herring had been 100%, I, I think potentially he would have played. But it's a right to, to start Kelleher this week and, and bring Sheen off the bench. What does uh, Bundy, Aki's inclusion in the starting lineup signify for him and for McCluskey? Well, I think McCluskey's actually laid down a marker. So Rob, uh, Robbie Henshaw's number one at 12. Um, and and he's, he's back training. He's back training, right? So um, I think McCluskey obviously got that start against South Africa, looked good for, for before he had to go off injured, was good in November. And with Bundy being out of form or out of favour in Connacht, he got the start when Henshaw was out against, against Wales and it's done really well. So... Um, I think that the challenge is there for Bundy Aki now to show that he can go into this Irish team without a lot of game time um, and be better than McCluskey, um, which is exactly the type of competition that um, Farrell will want. And I, I'd expect him to be good. I think he'll, he'll rise to the occasion. Um, and I think he'll, you know, whatever issues going on with Connacht, it won't carry over to Ireland. I think Farrell is a good man manager and um, we'll see him you know, lay down his his marker and, and we'd see where we're at. But I, I, I would still believe that Henshaw will start, you know, as soon as he's fit. Henshaw started at 12. You have McCluskey and Bundy vying for that 12 jersey. But is there any backup to Gary Ringrose at 13? Not at the level he's playing at. Um, I know that. The, yeah, no. Uh, he's the backup. The backup. He's like backup for yeah, Sexton. Yeah, look, I think they'd play, they'd, they'd play maybe Robbie at 13 or they'd move Bundy to 13 if they, if they had to. Uh, we don't have another out and out. 13 who's who's kind of shown that he's proven there's a Antoine Frisch or Tony Fresh as the Munster players call him um, has has done very well for for Munster he's a he's a lot of natural ability um, but still a little bit raw so um, yeah he, the, the, there's a we have to move around the different pieces of the jigsaw really to cover that but we don't have an out and out proven backup unfortunately Jack Conan is, gets the nod and you know he's had such a an up and down time of it of of late when we look at opportunities and talk about uh, people have been given chances, is this a big one for Jack? Yeah, it is. Obviously, um, he's kind of fallen behind uh, Doris and Van der Fleer, even at Leinster for some of the big games. Um, but he's a British and Irish line test starter. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he plays number eight suits how Ireland play. He's he's very good in the wider challenge. He's got good footwork, keeps the ball alive. He's got good speed. Um, but the problem is the balance. Look at the balance of this back row with Doris, Van der Fleer, and Cohen. Is is good, and it's a back row that's played together a lot for Leinster and Ireland. But Omani has had a resurgence in form, and um, you know, even though he's he's moved back to the bench this week, I think still think that six jersey is his, um, and Doris is the first choice eight at the moment. But it gives Conan a chance to, I suppose, remind everybody of of what mm-hmm. he can do for Ireland. You're looking at the at the future. Bernard and you think two, three more games in the Six Nations World Cup and you look at Peter Mann he was not getting any younger could that back row become the World Cup back row with Peter Mann being the big impact sub yeah it could uh, it certainly could Um, but I I actually think he'll get to the World Cup as number one Um, I think he's just signed another central contract actually so he's he's going to go on after that but um, 
I think the, I think Jack Conan needs a big game. I, I think there's a perception that you know Mahoney is is, is tougher. Um, you know is is probably more suited to the 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 really tight stuff. Obviously, he's a better line out forward. Um, and with Doris and Van der Fleer, you don't need Conan's carrying ability. You, you actually because you know they share it out quite pretty well between. Dan Sheen or Ronan Kelleher or Andrew Porter or, or Ty Furling when he's back in so maybe you need that six who isn't all flash and, and, and you know all the the nice stuff it's just someone who has big moments in his game uh, and that could be off the bench for sure but uh, I think that the team have been playing very well with him as a starter and Doris at eight so um, I think unless something drastic happens that'll be the starting back row What would you have put Conan's tip and form down to? It's probably not the power athlete that Doris and Van. Look, you're up against some incredibly good so players. He hasn't dropped off. He hasn't dropped off very much. Um, it's just the balance of how Ireland want to play um, looks to be O'Mahony being that as a line-out guru, slowing the ball down, jackal threat, and then you have the the ball carrying ability of Van der Fleer and and Doris. Um, it's not. He hasn't really dipped off that much. It, it's just as you say, competition. Not dropped off much but Bernard Jackman was stuck for words. I was nearly amazed listening to that one. <laughs> the silence. He was listening to Guy Moore. Value of silence. And value of silence. Uh, Bernard, thanks a million for take or coming in this evening. We've a quick break to break. We've a quick break to take. We'll be back with soccer next. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back. It's time to talk football. There is a huge Europa League game tonight between Man United and Barcelona and we're going to get that, to that in a second. But first of all, um, I want to welcome you, David Connolly, to the show. How are you? Good evening. Very well, you, Marie? <laughs> Good. I want to start with Manchester City um, last night. Uh, just watching, it was one of those games. It really was a game of two halves. But I was listening to Pep afterwards and he was making the jokes about playing nine strikers in the second leg. And I just thought, are we just expecting too much of this Manchester City team now? Jeez, uh, I mean, you're, do, do you listen to Pep? I find him a hard listen <laughs> after, don't you? I mean, he, he must be a he's a nightmare to interview. I mean, he really is. It's like pulling teeth with him. Um, he's so sarcastic look, as well. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he, he's uh, in his defence. I think what he's saying is, you know, they're playing every, you know, two, three days, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and we understand that, the Premier League, the level, etc. Um, he probably, I mean, look, they, they could have maybe had the game, you know, another goal first half. They probably would have seen it out, right? And, you know, Leipzig, strong second half. They're having a good season in the Bundesliga. Um, and they came on strong, right? And I, I don't think I don't think you can say they didn't deserve a point after that, you know. And, and maybe Pep's just he's a bit irritable, right? But I, I think he always is mm -hmm. in in his interviews. Yeah, he's a, he is hard to interview, I think. Yeah, he um, is. Yeah. And look, yeah, look away from home. I think I think they desperately missed Kevin De Bruyne. Desperately, no mm -hmm. matter what 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 anyone says, what he says, or or whatever. I think they really missed him. But um, look, it's all set up for the second leg, but it doesn't get any easier because. You know, like they have got a lot of volume of games to get through, right? So, um, you know, Leipzig will not be a pushover, even even at home. That's for sure. They won't be, but Manchester City are the only English team that didn't lose in the last sixteen of the Champions yeah. League, so they're in the best position. But what about the Europa League, which is tonight? United, Barcelona, two-two, back in Old Trafford. Yeah. United got the win in fourteen from fifteen. There, David, they're going to hockey yeah. Barcelona, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I, t I tell you what, I mean, there's Juventus are, uh, are, 
are in the, you know, they're two up, I think two one up or whatever at the minute. I mean, there's some top teams mm -hmm. in the Europa League. You talk about, you know, playing in the Europa League. So, um, look, I guess for United, you probably could say they might have, you know, got the job, job done over there. They didn't. It leaves it open. No Gavi, no Pedri. Busquets back. I mean, all the names roll off the tongues. You know, Casemiro, he's back in. Varane back in. I tell you what, you know, just talking off air there, the United side kind of picks itself. And, and, and that's for the first time, I think, in a long time. The issue for them, I think, is Sancho from the start, it's a bit different than coming on and having an impact. How will Jaden Sancho do from the start? I think it's a really big night for him because I think there's a lot of goodwill that he's gone through an awful lot as a person, hasn't he? And, and as a player, you know, it's a different pressure starting. Now, I hope he does well, you know, but he's starting from the off today. And, and that's a, it's, a bit, it's, a big, it's a big night for him, I think. Ruby, I saw that Ten Hag and Alex Ferguson had dinner during the week. He didn't send you any WhatsApps and tell you what's happening no, or anything? No, I got no update on that <laughs> way. But Ten Hag, I mean, what is it since he's taken over? United have just turned, absolutely turned the corner, haven't they, David? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I lived, I lived up in uh, Manchester when I played for Wigan, and where where they had the meal, that that village. I got to be honest, you can't go anywhere up there without someone knowing what you're doing. It is a bit of a goldfish bowl, so I think for probably Ten Hag. It, I don't know what you think, but, you know, sometimes it would be nice if that didn't get out, mm. you know, if they know. had that little, you know, but you can't go anywhere. There's always a camera. You could. I Why didn't you go to Sir Alex's house and bring a chef with them? No one would have known well, that. Is that yeah. what you do, Ruby, yeah? <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of nice, the old and the new, right? And it looks it looked, it looked really nice. And I think it's great that Ten Hag is embracing that, isn't he? He's not afraid of the pressure. You know, he's in a good place. Because you know he's winning, team are doing but well. But David, I um, worked in uh, you know? newspapers, and I think those things are always for show. Like they know exactly yeah. what's going to get out. Yeah, absolutely, they well, know what's going to get out, who's going to see them, where it's going to be. They want to get a message out. All of those things are choreographed. They all have advisors. Uh, David, you're going to realise this is the absolute biggest skeptic that we're <laughs> talking about. Yeah. Things are usually exactly. as they seem, is all I'm saying. And if they're out in well, public getting getting their picture taken, it's because they want to. Uh, do you reckon? I mean, I mean, look, Marie, he's always, Ten Hag's always out on his bike, you know, because he's Dutch and, you know, that's not staged, is it? You know, I, I, you'd, you'd like to think that, that they're having a nice meal, but where can you go to have a bit of privacy is kind of it. But it was a lovely photo and it, and it shows you they're in a good place at the minute, which is, which is good. Yeah, the old well, we'll see if it was a nice photo if they go for dinner again next week. And that'll depend <laughs> on what happens tonight. David Connolly, we are, we're out of time. We got sidetracked there. Oh, but, uh, short and sweet. Short yeah. and sweet. Thank you so much for, for coming on, though, and we'll talk to you again soon. Ruby, Take care. It's strange to have you here on a Thursday. What's your look? It is. I was in Liverpool Tuesday, Marie, for the launch of the Grand National Wait, so that's where I was. So. All right, we'll be gearing up for Cheltenham soon, will we? Three weeks. Oh there'll be only God. one day left. Okay, right. Well, uh, you'll be back next week. I'll be back at tomorrow. I bet it is Silva's up next. RTE 2FM.